CGM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor On on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. This first interview is a post-dated segment, so some of the events referred to may already have happened. In this segment of our show, Jessica Smith will be telling us about living well with epilepsy. So, can you tell me a little bit about living well with epilepsy? Sure. Um, uh, my name is Jessica Keenan-Smith, and Living Well with Epilepsy is an online platform that I started, gosh, back in 2009. Um and I started it essentially because um, I was diagnosed when I was 12, um, and I had my daughter, um, and uh, Twitter and WordPress had just come out, and I basically didn't have the bandwidth to write a book, um, and I wanted to share resources that I had learned from living with epilepsy so long. Um, but when I did, I discovered that people were essentially looking for a place, a way to share their own personal stories. So I cracked open the back, taught myself how to code, and um, at that point it was just basically a straight blogger website. So teaching myself how to code back in 2009 was easier than it is today. Um, and it grew from there. Um and now it's a resource for people around the world and for industry, advocacy, government, um, and patients. And it helps to kind of bridge the gap between the patient communities and the advocacy communities and the scientific communities to kind of share information and resource and kind of give kind of, for the scientific communities, give kind of a keyhole view into what it really looks like living with epilepsy, and for the science, for the patient communities, allow them a way to 
um, get, you know, have a little validation of, you know, that, that they're not alone in, in this, what feels like a very isolating condition, um, and that their experience is not as unique as it feels. So, so, so today, how do you go about reaching out to the affected population to let them know that there is a space where they can, uh, they can share and get a different perspective? Um, at this point, some of that happens organically. Um, some of it is, you know, on social media. Some of it is going to events throughout the community. Um, some of it is going to scientific events. Um, I spend a lot of time people seeking me out. Um, and I've built pretty deep relationships with um, some pretty accomplished folks who at this point have now kind of taken on the role of advocacy um, and within epilepsy there's there's you know as there is with most disease states there's there's some politics so um, I kind of pick and choose who I I lean on um, you know I sort of trust my gut who I I connect with and um, you know it's sort of like building friendships so once I I get a sense that somebody's science is good, that that they treat people well, um, then sadly that person is, is with me for a long time. So, do you ever encounter any myths or misperceptions concerning epilepsy in your work? Oh, for sure. Um, and, and I would say that's true here in the States. It's true... In low and middle income countries, it's true in cities. It's true in uh, in rural areas, um, and it can be anything from you know if you know one of my neighbors said to me, and we've lived in this neighborhood for almost eighteen years. Um, you know, oh, your seizures are controlled. You don't have to take medicine anymore. To um, People still think you need to put something in somebody's mouth if they're having a seizure, To which is not true. Let me just <laughs> state, please don't put anything in somebody's mouth when they're having a seizure. Um, to, uh, you know, you must have epilepsy because, you know, you're be, you, you've been taken over by a demon. Um you know, which is not true. Um, it could be anything from an infection to, you know, uh, you know, misfiring neurons to some cause that, you know, medicine can't even determine at this point. Um, so yeah, there's 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 still stigma. There's still myths, um, and. You know, it's sort of incumbent upon people with epilepsy to 
to talk about it as much as they feel comfortable. So in your time with the organization and advocating for patients with epilepsy, has there been any success moment that stands out for you? Um, I guess I would say there have been a few. Um, very early on, I remember, um, you know, Epilepsy Awareness Month would come and go, and, and there would be nothing in the news. There would be, you know, very early on, there wasn't even a walk. Um, so... You know, for as long as I've been living with this and working in this space, I really have seen, you know, broad sweeping changes in how we talk about this and, you know, the fact that we do talk about it, that, um, that there is advocacy now, um, However, we have leaps and bounds to go. Um, I guess I would say, you know, the times that I have been the patient at the table um, and have had to, you know, have heard the conversation sort of swirling around and have sat there, and, and this has happened with, you know, global organizations, with scientific leaders around the table and, you know, I've sort of listened to the conversation and said, wow, you know, somebody needs to say something. And it has sort of had been a light bulb moment where I've said, wait a second, I'm the patient at the table. I need to be the one to, to say something. And I have. And it hasn't made like a major shift, but people have stopped and listened. Um, so the importance of having a seat at the table in that patient role and the impact it can have um, has been that kind of aha moment for me. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. Thanks. In this segment of our show, Jared Griffin will be telling us about Annabelle's Challenge. So, can you tell me a bit about Annabelle's Challenge? Yes, yeah, so we're a UK-registered charity. Um, we initially set up in January 2013, so we are actually celebrating 10 years this this year, and particularly this month, um, in March, because that's when we started the process of getting registered, which happened a year later, so between January 2013 and, and the subsequent year, we moved quite a pace and we're basically here to help patients and family members that are diagnosed or affected by vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or for short vascular EDS. So for those who might not be as familiar, how does EDS typically affect a person? So it's, it's the a rarer type of EDS from the wider Ehlers-Danlos um, family of, of, of disorders and, and thankfully for, for ours, even though it's the, the worst type and the life-threatening one, it's one that you can get a genetic test for, so it's very easy to get a 
diagnosis done once a blood test or a skin biopsy is done. Uh, more so skin, uh, sorry, blood tests are, are done nowadays anyway. And um, once confirmed, that's when our support will kick in. Usual symptoms that lead up to a potential diagnosis. Easy bruising that can be unexplained. The skin's thin. Um, it's basically connective tissue disorders, so it affects most of the internal uh, organs. And it's basically a fault with the collagen compared to somebody else that's not got this mutation. So, how do you go about reaching out to the patient community to let them know that your supports do exist? Yes, when we initially launched uh, 10 years ago, and it was, on, it was off the back of my daughter that was diagnosed with, with vascular EDS, and at the time she was age free, so she was the youngest in the UK to be diagnosed, we set up Annabelle's Challenges and Awareness Campaign initially on Facebook, and that started to attract other people that had got the condition to reach out to us. So our, our first um, person to reach out to us came from Canada. Um, he was age 48 at the time and, and he was sort of reaching across to say that although Annabelle's so young, she's got a good life ahead of her. Um, and then more and more we're trickling through. So then uh, across the US, across Europe and, and then on in, within the UK. And, and the numbers today, 10 years on, like, there's just over 400 people that we support across, I think, 22 countries now with this condition. So, what are some of the most common re commonly requested supports that you offer? What do people come to you and say, I need support with this for? It's uh, predominantly support for either them as the individual diagnosed or a loved one that's been diagnosed, and that support um, can be things like management and guidance, living with this condition and what to do to try and minimise any risk. Um, certainly if it's within the UK we can do a visit to a school if it's a child that's involved to explain to the school some adaptions that can be put in to try and make it a safer environment. If it's outside the UK we can still offer that but we do it via Zoom. Um, it can be matching people up locally within their country to somebody else that's got it. Uh, you know, they literally might not know that another 30 minutes down the road could be somebody else that's got the condition and we can do that on our database so it's all about peer support and, and basically trying to help them from a living with it day-to-day -day aspect rather than a clinical aspect which is what our um, two clinics offer in the NHS EDS service. So, your time with Annabelle's challenge, has there been any success moment that stands out for you? And we've, we've had a couple and one from an organisational point of view back in 2018 was to be awarded the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service and that was in recognition of the amount of volunteers that we have um, that help to promote awareness and to help us function. Um, so that, that was a big one to get that as an award. Um, but in terms of success, I think it's where we have a positive impact on somebody where they feed back and say, actually, uh, it's whilst it's not a great condition to be diagnosed with, the support that we give has given them a better outlook and improved quality of life. And in some instances, we've managed to, um, if somebody's in a situation where they're in the emergency room, we've provided advice and guidance and, and some success out of that. So those are some of the, 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 the positive ones that we've had. So if you could send any message to the community about the need for awareness and support, going forward, what would you say? 
for anybody who's living with or potentially going to be diagnosed with a rare condition, especially one like ours, which is life-threatening, um, is to is to reach out, and there is support out there, and not just from us as an organisation in the UK. We've got organisations in the US that can help and across Europe. Um, I think it's just having that, you know, please do reach out. We can not just offer support, but also signpost. And, and if we don't know the answers, we'll try and find it out for, for that individual. So, do you know offhand about how many people are affected by vascular radius? Yeah. One in a hundred thousand is the number that's, that's kind of suggested. Um, so from our perspective in the UK, it's around 740 people. Um, so the numbers are quite small. Um, but off the back of people trying to help raise awareness, that's what tends to drive people towards us. So Google's one way that if you search vascular EDS, even though it's going to bring up some of the negative side of the living with the condition, we do rank quite high. So um, we do come up and then that's obviously a connection back to us then. Like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. IndyLink will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. The whole thing about art for me is that art has always been a way for me to exercise demons and stuff, exercise a certain kind of frustrations or clawings in my brain. And rock and roll is like uh, a way from it. It's, it's totally different, you know. I mean, it's more an ecstatic thing. Revolution Rock airs Saturday nights, 7 to 9 p.m. on CJM 99.1 FM in the Windsor, Detroit area. We are a syndicated award-winning radio show that broadcasts 60s garage rock, 70s punk and new wave, surf alternative, indie, and old and new music within these genres. You can also hear us online at cjam.ca, iHeartRadio, and visit our website at revrock.blogspot.com. Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor On on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Jessica Smith told us a little bit about living well with epilepsy, and we heard about Annabelle's challenge from Jared Griffin. In this segment of our show, Mitchell Tremblay will be sharing a little bit about his insights into the disability community. So, can you tell me a bit about your interest in disability issues and the supports therein? Sure. Uh, I've been in the Ontario system, uh, social services system, since 2001. I uh, started off with the Welfare Slash Ontario Works, and then seven years later I was finally accepted to OESP, and for 20, 122 of those 23 years, I did almost no activism. I, I was just trying to survive in Toronto, going you know from rooming houses, and trying to do basically the same thing that we're doing now, and about a year ago, I found the Twitter community online. I was trying to save my cat that was dying, and people said, go do a, a GoFundMe. And I'd never really done a, a, you know, a GoFundMe before, and so I started to do that. I met a lot of activists and advocates and people who were really pushing the envelope, and I felt I, I felt almost upset with myself that I stayed so silent on it, thinking, oh, someone else is going to fight for me, and 
But for those two decades, nobody did. And now that's kind of what I'm doing with, you know, a collection of a lot of other people online and, and you know, in any possible format that we can do. Alrighty. So in your time navigating the system, did you ever see any myths or misperceptions concerning persons with disabilities that uh, the supports were actually enough or just the perception that we don't have to do better by this community? You know, that might have been my frame of mind early on when there were a lot of benefits like the, you know, the bed bug benefit and the, the move startup, the community startup one. There was all these little benefits that really helped you out and I'd just been on Ontario for works for the longest time and so going to ODSB, the disability supports here in Ontario, it was it was a radical change and I thought it was enough at the time and, you know, maybe it was for the way I was living, you know, just a $200 a month rooming house kind of situation but, you know, now in this climate, I absolutely I don't feel that way anymore. Um, there's a lot of stuff that people say about disabled people that I find troubling. The myth uh, in my mind, when I, I think of the word myth, it's the it's the laziness. It's the you know the rumors that they all do drugs, they all do alcohol. You know, they're generalizing. And this started kind of with Mike Harris, I think, in, in 1991, where it was a lot of like the dented can diet, and you know, you're not. It just didn't feel like it was equitable conversation from them. And then it's almost as if when Serb hit and Maid hit there was a radical change in the discussion and a lot of people who weren't allies became allies and a lot of other people who wouldn't normally talk about something like that, those issues, are talking about them, you know, through things like Bell Let's Talk and, you know, even Doug Ford has to mention ODSP. I, I don't remember it being so at the forefront of conversation. And so if there was any way we could dispel those myths, I mean, there are myths, we're, you know, we're working so hard you know, you, me, a lot of other people were doing podcasts, we're, you know, doing songs, art, photography, everything that we can push out there to be like, listen, we deserve a chance. You know, we have a right to life. So, in that sense, do you find that uh, doing things like, uh, like audio broadcasts and uh, using art, sort of the cool way of uh, presenting it to the rest of society, makes it easier to make the transition to uh, this is an issue of importance rather than presenting a cold statistic. Yeah, I recently had an experience where I finally went to a dentist and she was a young dentist, maybe 28 or 29, and I told her what the last 23, 23 years have been like for me and she was surprised, she was shocked, she was horrified, she said, I'm going to do something, I'm going to go, and I said, you know, go on Twitter and, you know, maybe follow these people and share and then I was thinking about that for a month, and I kept asking people, I was like, how do I, how do I recreate that, where it's a one-on-one, -on -one, but I can do it with many people? And I just started listening to podcasts last year, um, listening to, you know, shipwreck ones or art history, or, you know, really calming stuff so I can go to sleep with all my anxieties. And I, I realized then that you could go one-on-one, -on -one with hundreds of people with a podcast and you could have an honest conversation with somebody who's in the trenches or somebody like who is a you know a medical professional and you could get your own angle and get your own news and your own perspective and ask the questions that a lot of people in the community want asked and I just find that that's the best way for us to proceed is to you know change minds. So in your time advocating has there been any success moment that stands out for you? 
Uh, it's a weird one. Um, early in my, I did about 15 different interviews about MAID and disability in Canada and in, in Ontario specifically. And one of those interviews went off to Barry Weiss, I think her name is. And then she sent it on to Ben Shapiro. And he read my story out while he was doing his show. I'm not a big fan. And obviously I have different views than him, but to, to hit that mainstream, which it is in the United States, unfortunately, to hit that mainstream and have my name uttered over in, um, I think he was in Israel at the time he read it. And so it just kind of, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to him and we agree a little bit on some of the made stuff, about you know, maybe the coercion and stuff, but not about he wants to cut it for everyone kind of thing. But to hear my story coming from him and to be reaching that far right, it was like a, a breakthrough. It was like I realized, okay, so what I have to do is I have to get through these bubbles that we've built, these social bubbles on Twitter where it's like, oh, I only like Susan and Bob and Tom's ideas, so I'm only going to be seeing what they put out. And the algorithm does that as well. So it's, you know, it's double-timed. But that was that was an interesting moment for me just to be watching that. And I had a friend who was a big fan of his, and he sends me a message, and he's like, hey, listen, you were just on, you were just mentioned on Ben Shapiro. And I was like, no way. And I, I had to look up the YouTube and I sat there kind of with my jaw open going, well, I've done something. This is something, right? <laughs> so if you could send any message to the community about what needs to continue to happen in support of the disability community, make sure that things are equitable and the income, for example, is enough to live on, what would you say? I say we have to prove them wrong. I think we've been having to prove them wrong for decades, but we can do it as a united front with things like Twitter and Tumblr. And, you know, there's little places that, that I reach into. Uh, Neuromart is a website for neurodivergent people, and a lot of them are nonverbal. They communicate with me and they say, listen, we don't feel heard. We don't, you know, have so what we have to do is we have to elevate those voices. We have to stand side by side as the united front and just echo the same lines where it's like we are people too. And CERB has proven that, you know, anything under $2,000 is what people need. And we are people too. And, you know, because being cut out of that $2,000 CERB and not getting what we're calling it online as DERB, the Disability Emergency Relief Benefit, while we wait for the Canadian Disability Benefit, if, if we could all team up, and I use this reference because I grew up in the in the 80s, but if we could care bear this issue, where we line up and all our tummies let up and we all hit the exact same issue, or, you know, if we could all reach out and be like, okay, listen, Jagmeet Singh, no one's talking to us. Can you talk to us? Can you talk about us? Can you understand who we are and, and what we're trying to achieve here? And I think that would be the most important thing that I could say to people. Like thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. My friends, Mitchell's words were a reminder to me that persons with disabilities should be their own best advocates. It is incumbent on every one of us to know our own rights and how to stand for them. A person with a disability often faces the idea of dealing with a medical professional and having to explain their own condition. But if we know our bodies, our minds, and our responses, chances are we can get a better outcome, because we're a lot harder to dismiss when we have something intelligent and meaningful to contribute. Yes, medical science is a baseline, and a great one at that, but it does not account for every person's strength. It does not mean that a treating physician or anyone 
in a bureaucratic system knows everything about your situation. Fact is, if we don't stand up for ourselves, if we don't use our voices, it's passively enabling others to say that we shouldn't be counted. And that's just wrong. Persons with disabilities are talented, intelligent members of the community, each one with something to contribute. Maybe it's just a question of finding the right tools or the right outlet. That doesn't mean the search is meaningless. It means you should be given the time and the care to find what works for the person so that they can give back to the community. A person with a disability is just as entitled to be a part of any walk of life as anyone else. And navigating complicated systems can seem like a daunting task, I grant. But the fact is, if you're not doing it alone, if you're not facing it under the perception of this is impossible for just me, you find others, stand with them. As a united front and as a community, your presence is stronger, and it is felt. Like any group in this world, people with disabilities just want to be heard, and counted, and included. And that's not unreasonable. It's simply a matter of presenting ourselves in a way that we state our case that can't be dismissed. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.